to the eight, everyone. Uh, we are kind of, kind of starting a two-part series uh, about foolish people, about not to be a fool. But let me say this. Regardless if you have like a favorite verse in the Bible or a favorite passage, or maybe you've never really opened up the Bible since you were a kid, or maybe you don't have a favorite part of the Bible because maybe all of it's a little bit confusing, wherever you might be, I want to share with you now a passage which I promise you will now become your favorite passage in the Bible, and I will share this passage. Let me just share the reference first. It's coming from the book titled The Book of Sirach. The Book of Sirach is actually in the original ancient Christian Bible, but 500 years ago, there was a group of Christians that wanted to omit some of the books from the Bible, but in the original complete Bible that, that, that followers of Jesus used for centuries, there was a, a book of wisdom titled The Book of Sirach. So I want to share it with you. Sirach, not the alcohol, but Sirach, uh, he's a prophet. Okay. He says this. You should not talk at length with the foolish. You want to know the original word for foolish? Don't talk to stupid people. Okay, this is what he's saying. I told you, you're going like, to like the Bible, I promise you. You should not talk at length with the foolish. And you should not go with the senseless. Keep yourself from him. So that you may, I don't know why he just assumes it's a him, but keep yourself from him so that you may not have problems and so that you will not be polluted by his sin. Turn away from him and you will find rest and you will not be discouraged by his foolishness. Do not raise your hand, but do you have, do you know a foolish person? Okay, hopefully it's the person not next to you. Hopefully it's not a person that lives in your house, but I promise you, we all have to deal with dumb people. So in the words of Mr. T, don't be a fool, right? Like we're all surrounded by foolish people all the time. The question is, like, how do we deal with dumb people? I mean, I wish I had the guts to title this series, How to Deal with Dumb People, but I didn't. But so I thought I'll just say it in the sermon itself. But we all are surrounded by foolish people. Foolish people ignorant people, annoying people, mean people, whatever term you want to use, they have a sense of control in our lives. They control us. Like, they know, they, they know how to get under our skin. They know how to send that email, that text. They know how to say that last snarky comment to really get under your skin. They control us. Mean people mean people or foolish people, whatever term you want to so, uh, you use, throw us off balance. They throw us off balance. Like we're peaceful and then when we're around that annoying person, we're off balance. And like, so what do you do when you're off balance? Like imagine you push me back. What I'm actually going to do is I'm going to overcompensate by trying to move forward. So when, when a mean person throws us off, we feel we need to overcompensate. So we find a way to overcompensate when someone is being super mean or annoying to us. It's impossible. It's impossible to keep balance with a mean person in our lives. It is impossible. They're always going to find a way to get under our skin to throw us off. Many of us have heard the golden rule. Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. Right? That's a pretty common ethic regardless of your your, your view of who Jesus is. Most of us can agree on the ethic, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And we'll talk more about, is that bar high or low as far as that ethic? But it is so hard to even follow that ethic when we're surrounded by annoying people. When we're, it's so hard 
when someone is mean to you, like, it's so hard to, to, to push back and being kind to them, right? You want to, what comes around goes around, right? This is what makes sense. Okay, you, y'all, this is the way you're going to respond? Okay, we'll, we'll play your game. And we feel like we can be mean back to them. We begin to justify ourselves to give it back to people. Have you been around someone that like, like let's say you are, you're around that mean person and then everyone else are now around you notices you're totally different around that person. Everyone notices like you, you change, like you completely change. Why? Because you're off balance. And then you feel that since you're off, you feel like you need to justify yourself so you feel like you want to give it back. Here is the bottom line of what we're talking about today at the eight. Sometimes when we are mistreated in a relationship and we can't take it out on them, we take it out on someone or something else. Sometimes when we are mistreated in a relationship and we can't take it out on them, we take it out on someone or something else. I have that annoying coworker, boss, who's really mean and really knows how to belittle me and push me down. Okay, because of that, then I have every right to drink after work. Okay, my wife is gonna, my, my wife, my husband is gonna act like that. Okay, you know what? I have every right to build a porn addict, become a porn addict because of what he or she is doing. Sometimes when we are mistreated in a relationship and we can't take it out on them, we take it out some other way. The question is, what do you do? What do you do with mean, foolish, dumb people? Amshade, you can find a way to get even with them. But then my follow question to that, if you want to get even with someone who is mean, do you want to become just like them? Like, if you, if you want to become even with someone who is mean to you, do you want to become just like them? Is that where your bar is? Like, you're reaching their level, you're going to stoop down to their level and just be even with someone who is already a jerk to you? Then what? What, what, what ethic are you pushing yourself to, to just to be even with them? Option number two. You can, ignore, you, can, you can ignore that mean person. But like we, can all, we all know, like if you ignore that mean person, what does that person continue to do? Continue to take advantage of you. Continue to be mean to you. Continue to belittle you. Continue to say those snarky comments that get under your skin. So what's, how do we handle this regardless of your worldview? And how do we handle this if you intentionally decide to lean toward Jesus? How do we deal with foolish people? You can take that first verse that we talked about in the, in the book of Sirach, and you can say, amen, glory be to God forever, amen. I should never have to deal with foolish people. The Bible tells me so. And that's the end of that. I promise you, it's going to be one of your favorite verses. I promise you I'll share the reference later. But it, it, we're tempted to just say, you know what, I'm going to completely ignore dumb, mean, foolish people. But how should I respond to mean people? And this is why we are going to share a story, a narrative reality, world history, however you want to look at it, from the year 1100 BC about pre-King David. By the way, I said this last week, but I'll say it again. It's a sinus infection. It's a cold. It's not COVID. I got tested. I just want to, sorry. So this is a story about pre-King David. When we think of David, we think of King David, the prophet and king, may his blessing give us all amen, right? We think of like, we think of this like glorious person that just like writing these amazing poetry and that becomes a template for us and our prayers. But let's go kind of go back to not David, the prophet and king, but actually David, the fugitive, okay? So just as a quick 30-second uh, uh, summary of his life, 
he, many of us are aware of the story of David and Goliath, which it's really puny on this icon here. Obviously, this is an icon following the, the art of Coptic art uh, of this icon. So you see him holding a, a harp because he is a musician. But there's a puny part in the, in the icon where you see him beating Goliath, right? So many of us have heard that story from second grade. David beating Goliath, yeah, and he won. But ever since that point, like so many people were wanting to kind of take down David because here he is like kind of gaining you know, popularity. More people are talking about David. Okay, he just beat Goliath. That's like unheard of, okay? And then all, there's also been rumors that a prophet has anointed David to be a future king. Imagine if you are now the king of Israel and you want to be king, right? You're, you're holding all the power and you want to pass that on to your son, Jonathan. So, and, and so Saul's king, he wants to pass it down to his son, Jonathan. But now you also heard that there is this, this punk kid, David, who has been anointed and, and appointed to be the future king. So, of course, that just cr creates so much tension and anger to the point that David is full of anger that he's being chased basically by King Saul because now he's appointed a new king down the line. So what does King Saul have to do? He's going to chase down David and try to kill him. David is full of anger. So what happens when you're a hurt person? You end up attracting other hurt people. And so you have David as a hurt person attracting other hurt people, and he ends up being a fugitive running for his life out in the wilderness. And this is where we pick up our story uh, from the author of 1 Samuel. Uh, this is our focus here. A certain man in Moan who had property there in Car at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. Okay, when we read that, we're like, okay. But like back then, like if, when we read that, if someone if someone had three thousand sheep, they're like, whoa, are you serious? Three thousand sheep? Like this shows like their wealth. Okay, this is like you know, put whatever number. This is their, his four hundred one k or whatever. His, how much in his bank account? This is equivalent to that. So obviously, for us as modern day readers, it has no emotional pull. But the author is wanting to pull as just far as how wealthy this man is. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, the opposite of that, was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calvite, okay? So we'll kind of get to Abigail down the line in a few weeks here, but our focus here is on Mr. Meany Nabal. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So when you're shearing sheep, this is basically payday. This is like your, like your annual report. Sorry, I'm not into the business world or corporate world, but this is like your, like, to see how much cash you really have, how wealthy you really are, okay? So, so David was in the wilderness. He heard that Nabal was shearing sheep to see how much wealth Nabal really has. So David sent 10 young men and, sent, and said to them, hey, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to you all that is yours. That's like a very formal greeting, you know, that's like, you know, assalamu alaikum or whatever. Like that's a very like formal way of like greeting someone, okay? So, so David is telling his, his, his group, his posse, he's telling his 10 young guys, hey, when you go to Nabal, you know, be, you know, like, be respectful. Don't just say, hey, like, you know, say, you know, how are you, sir? Like long life to you. Like, you know, be, be, be respectful in, in how you greet him. Like that. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. So here, here are the ten, 10 young men coming to Nabal. Now I hear, sir, Nabal, that it is sheep shearing time. When your, when your shepherds were with us, 
We did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. So here are the 10 young men coming. So we'll continue. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Here comes 10 young men coming, giving a nice, formal, respectful, cordial, nice greeting. And they say, Nabal, sir, your majesty, your reverence, I just want to share with you that, you know, we were with you in the wilderness and we saw you with, you, with your thousands of sheep and that's great. And, you know, if we really wanted to, sir, we could have found a way to kind of snatch some of your sheep. And you have 3,000, so you probably wouldn't have noticed. But to be honest, because we were so nice to you, like we didn't touch any of your sheep. So, you know, now it's sheep shearing time. You're about to see how much cash you really got. We would hope that maybe you kind of be, you know, nice to us, maybe share some of your wealth because we were nice to you. Like, we didn't do anything to your sheep while we were with you. In the wilderness, we could have easily grabbed some and cashed out ourselves. But since we were nice to you, you know, we wanted to share this message. So these young men, young men assistants of David, gave this message to Nabal. They gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited to see how Nabal, Mr. Meany, would react. Nabal answered David's servants. Uh, who, who? Who are you coming from? Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Can you remind me? Who is this punk kid? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I? Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from? Where are you coming from again? Why should I give it to you? Like, can you remind me again? Who are you? Your, 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 your friends of David? Who is that? It's his dad, Jesse. Remind me. None of that stuff is ringing a bell. David's men turned around and went back. Obviously, they're not going back with the greatest news, back to their friend David, right? When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, all right, fellas, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped on his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. David's response seems appropriate if the ethic is to go by what comes around goes around, to live by that low bar of, oh, you did this to me? Okay, all right, guys, strap on. We're, we're going on this journey. Grab your swords. We're going to go give Nabal a piece. I'm going to give Nabal a piece of my mind, right? So it kind of, we kind of understand where David's coming from. But here is the most powerful thing that the author intentionally points out. That David grabs his sword. You know, not, not only he got his troops and his friends, all the rest of his fugitives, okay, they're all hurt, okay, because they've been chased by the King Saul. So they're all hurt, and they're all about to give it back to Nabal because they thought they were doing a nice thing to Nabal, but Nabal is being mean to them and being disrespectful. So, so what is David? David grabs his sword. Does any of you know what is David's sword? Who, what's David's sword? You tell me. Huh? Yes, exactly. David's sword is from Goliath. Here, the, at least when, when he picked up his sword and he's about to give it back, but he's so full of emotion, right? So many of us make poor decisions because we are so emotionally charged. Here is David picking up his sword and he's about to go give it back to Nabal, go on this journey and really give it to Nabal, right? He justified himself because Nabal's mean. I've justified me being mean back to him. 
But when Nabal, when, sorry, when David picked up his sword, you would think maybe it could trigger a response, be like, man, like this, this sword actually is not my mine. Like I got it because I defeated Goliath. But actually it wasn't me defeating Goliath. It was God working through me that empowered me to defeat Goliath. So who I am and any victory I might have is not actually from me, but it's God working through me. You would have think maybe that would have triggered an emotional response or maybe just a prick of his conscience to wake up and be like, you know what? Maybe me getting even with Nabal is not the bar that I should aim for. But you and I relate to what David is doing. We feel we want to get back to those who hurt us. Hurt people hurt people. I'm sure you've heard that before. It's one of my favorite sayings. Hurt people hurt people. When we are hurt, we naturally hurt other people because we're coming from a place of pain. And hunted people hunt people. Here is David being hunted by King Saul. So he's naturally hurt and he's being hunted. So he's going to hunt other people. He's going to hurt other people. This is why our Christian worldview, our pursuit is to find self-healing. This is why, especially in the Orthodox tradition, we make a big deal of us being introspective, being repentant, of finding out what are those flaws, those voids, those weakness. And we come and surrender our sins to the true physician because if we are coming from a place of hurt, it will hurt our marriage, it will hurt our coworkers, it will hurt our kids. It becomes a generational impact. David had just said, it's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. I think he's, he's hopeless. He's like, I've done all this. He's saying, it's been useless. <laughs> I love this part. May God, this is his prayer. This is David's prayer before he's about to give it back to Nabal. May God deal with me, David, your servant, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. How many of us, we don't pray like this necessarily, but we pray, God, I come to you as your child. Please allow my coworker to get, to get into a severely bad accident this morning because of what he did yesterday. Lord, I pray that this person really gets a piece of my anger. You are a just God. So allow this person to get severely sick. Don't, don't kill him, but allow him to get very sick because you are a just God. Amen. Right? This is what David's praying. This is what David's praying. Right? We pray something. We don't, we, uh, we, we, that's not very Christian if we pray like that, right? But here's David. He's justifying his actions to the point that he's justifying his prayers. He has now manipulated and ma manipulated theology for his own benefit. This is why, my friends... The ancient church guides us on how to pray. The church, as our mother, as we talked about in liturgy, guides us on how to pray. The church says, okay, I get it. Maybe you're lost on what words to articulate in prayer. Here's something titled the Igbeya. Maybe you don't know how to process your emotion or your hurt to avoid you hurting other people. Come and abide in me, in the Eucharist. 
The church guides us on how to pray because when it's all by yourself, yes, we do need our own personal prayer. Don't get me wrong. We need a diverse array of prayer. And we see that in the church, right? There's prayer in motion, actions, visible through, and through, through smell. We use a holistic approach to prayer. So yes, we do need our own personal prayer even for us to vent to God. Don't get me wrong. But when that becomes the predominant way, then we begin to rewrite theology to the point that we can justify our prayer May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by morning, if I leave one of those scumbags alive. Amen. Right? That's his prayer. He's saying, let God be, deal with me. Make sure that I please don't leave a single human being alive by morning. And glory be to God forever. Amen. That's his prayer. He justified what he wants, that he made it so beautiful in prayer and so spiritual. He probably said it in a nice, soft voice to even sound more spiritual. That way he can feel, I can kill everybody because God is on my side. Right? He has created his own theology. Nabal, Dave. Nabal, evil for evil. Like, he, he's a mean person. He's a hurt person. He's naturally going to hurt others, and he justifies it. David feels like he's doing the right thing, helping Nabal. He could have easily taken advantage of Nabal all those years, but decided not to, decided to, to honor his property and took care of Nabal's stuff and never did anything wrong to Nabal. And now David feels, now it's my turn for good to come my way for everything I did. But now, it's not coming back? Okay. Now he wants to repay evil for the good that he did. Apply this to the pain in your life and those mean people, foolish people in your life. Do you want to be even with them? Do you want to be even with them? Do you want to, to, to get to the point of just being even with someone who's already a jerk to you? Then what is that, like... Yay. Is, is, that, is that the ethic? You want to be mean back to someone who's mean to you? Then what? Wouldn't you rather be ahead? Wouldn't you rather rise above the lowliness of a mean person? And a better question. What story do you want to tell? Do you want your story to be, yeah, I had this mean person in my life, but... I prayed, and this bad thing happened to that person, so we got even. What story do you want to tell? Do you want to tell a story that you became even with that person? Or do you want to tell a story that you rose above? What story do you want to tell your children? What story do you want to tell coworkers, family, friends? That when that one person was so mean, stooped so down low, and really was getting under your skin, what story do you want to tell? And here's the question, don't think through this question now, because we'll talk about it down the line. What would it look like for you to return good for evil? What would it look like? It, let's just assume. I'm, I'm, not I'm not telling you to do this. I'm telling you. What would you look like? What would your story look like if you pushed yourself to entertain the question of what would it look like to return good for evil? What if that was the ethic in which we try to push ourselves? Let this just be like an appetizer, an introduction for us to assess the mean people in our lives, the foolish people in our lives, for us to acknowledge how they throw us off balance, how they really know how to get under our skin. How do we process that? How the hurt that they spark within us, how does that end up becoming a byproduct of me hurting other people? 
let this be an introduction for us to even assess the mean people in our lives and how we respond to them. And then assess what's the goal. Is it to be even with them? And answer the question of what story do you want to tell about the mean people in your lives? And then ultimately entertain. Think about it, and we'll get back to that question later on. And we'll look at the rest of the story, what happened between Nabal and David, and there ends up being Nabal's wife in the middle of this picture in Abigail. We'll get to that later. What would it look like for you to return good for evil? Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, our logic pulls us for us to define what is right, what is the right thing to do. We justify our actions to the point that we feel comfortable on giving it back to someone. But Lord, this is not the ethic. This is not the morale that you have invited us to live to. But you raised that bar, not just by words, but by your actions of your son. Lord, it is through Jesus, it is through you being the fullness of life that you understand our hurts, you came to remedy our hurt, you came to acknowledge our hurt and, and encourage us to find healing within ourselves because our hurt can hurt other people and we are all surrounded by other hurt people and broken people which end up hurting us. But Lord, I pray that as we look at this beautiful story of Nabal and David and Abigail, the Lord, that it inspires us, it convicts us to at least assess how do we want to respond back to mean people? Is it tooth for a tooth? Or maybe you have invited us to a higher calling, a higher bar when it comes to hurtful people in our lives. Lord, we thank you for preserving this story for us, that we're able to read it now centuries later, and we're able to find life lessons from it. Through the prayers of King David, the prophet and king, and all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you guys. Just a reminder, next Sunday is 